he called the series Put Me In, Coach, because that's what Paul's doing with young Timothy. He's saying, hey, God's got a job for you, and I want to help you as you do it. I want to coach you as you do it. So we talked with Timothy personally last week. In chapter 2, he starts to talk to Timothy about what's important in the life of the church. You ever wonder that? If God could order the steps of a church, what would be important to him? What would be on his priority list? Well, check this out. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1, you're going to get a glimpse. Paul writes to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that petitions... Prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority. The very first thing Paul tells Timothy about the church is they need to be a praying people. He says, first of all, that doesn't mean we have to do it first thing in our service. It means this is the most important thing I'm telling you about the church. They must be a praying people. Peter Deneka founded the Slavic Gospel Association. He said this, much prayer, much power. No prayer, no power. D. Edmund Hebert said this, he said, prayer is the most dynamic work which God has entrusted to his saints, but it is also the most neglected ministry open to the believer." When we read those words, first of all, they make us stop and look at our individual lives and the lives of our church and say, do we reflect that priority in what we do in a day-in, day-out basis? It's an important question. There's a couple words that he uses for prayer. One is petitions, and the root word in petition in the Greek is need. This is when you come to God Sometimes I do it literally with my hands open and say, God, this situation I'm going through right now, I can't make it on my own. I need you. I need your strength. I need your wisdom. I need your power. Our church needs your power. It's need. You see this in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus modeled it, when, when He said, pray this, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Those are petitions that we ought to have in our lives. Prayers is a word that's always used in connection with God. It, it brings about the idea of reverence for God. When we enter God's presence, we ought not to do it casually. We ought to do it with an awareness that I'm talking to the almighty king of the universe. You remember in Jesus' model prayer, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. He's our Father, but we must never forget that He's holy. That's who we're talking to. Intercession has the idea of confidence in entering the presence of the one you're talking to. I've shared it before as on a stormy night, one of our boys hears the thunder and gets a little nervous and they run into our bed and say, hey, can I, can I climb in there? <laughs> because they're our sons, we say, yeah, come on in, right? It's that confidence in entering God's presence. And I've been thinking about that this week, how sometimes maybe I take that for granted. 
So I'm reading through the book of Leviticus. I mentioned that last year. I go through the Bible in a year, and Leviticus is an interesting stretch. I read this. That God said to his people in Leviticus 15.31, he says to Moses, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Tabernacle was right there in between the people where God's presence was. And he's saying to Moses, tell them to stay away from unclean things. Because if they come in here unclean, they're dead. (laughs) That's heavy. Now you go to the New Testament, Hebrews 4, verse 13. We start to get some of the same feeling. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He's talking about everything that goes on in here. Even things that the rest of the world doesn't see, God sees. Now, if we stopped there, we'd all walk out of here trembling, right? But for those of us who have trusted in Christ, what's he go on to say? He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I hope that idea never grows old, that as a child of God in Jesus Christ, you get to enter your Father's presence with confidence and share with him what's on your heart. Lastly, he says, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving ought to be a key characteristic in our prayer lives and the way we live. This morning, one of the guys who helped set up early in the morning, I was talking to him and thanking him for what he does. You know what he said to me? He said, You know why I do it, Scott? He said, I do it because of all Jesus has done for me. I know he died for me. And he said, there there were a number of years in my life where I sold him short. I didn't go to church and I I didn't serve him. He said, I've jumped back in this past year because I want to thank him. I want to live in light of what he's done for me. That's the attitude. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And that ought to enter into our prayers. But then it gets interesting. You notice where he says, I want you to pray these prayers for for all people. That all is an important word. Because as you think through the people in your life, I'm guessing there may be some you don't want to pray for. (laughs) That one guy that did that to you. That one lady that said that to you. You know who I'm talking about. They're included in the all. I think one thing that helps with that is when we look back to chapter 1. You remember Paul's view of himself? 1 Timothy 1.15. He said of himself, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. He remembered his sinful lifestyle and how God had saved him out of it. Maybe he even remembered that as he oversaw Stephen's 
stoning. You remember Stephen was the first Christian martyr and, and Saul stood there approving of it. Maybe he watched Stephen as he died and as he looked to heaven and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, just as Jesus had said. And maybe he looked back and said, wow, my life is an answer to Stephen's prayer. So if he could pray for me, even as I oversaw his death, then surely I can pray for all people too. Believers and unbelievers, moral and immoral people, Americans and those in other countries, those of my race, those of other races, our church, other churches, friends, enemies, our military, but also those in ISIS, that they would come to the Lord, see the light and be saved and turn from their evil ways. We all tend to pray for some, right? It's easy to pray for some. He says, I want you to pray for all. And he doesn't mean you need to get a list of all seven billion names in the world, but when you think of all the groups represented in the world, as they come across your radar, they ought to be in your prayer life. I think it'd be good this morning if each of us went before God and said, hey God, please help me grow in this. Maybe start small. Just say, God, show me three more groups that I need to start praying for that I'm not praying for right now. Help my circle of prayer to widen, to be for all. But then he gets more specific, and this is timely. I didn't know this timing would line up with the, the weekend of a presidential inauguration, but it did. He says, we need to pray for kings and all those in authority. In fact, if you watch the inauguration, the scripture Franklin Graham read was this scripture we're going through today at the inauguration. We have to pray for all of our leaders. The early church modeled this, and you guys know the early church had emperors who were sometimes far from friendly to the Christian faith. But they read Paul's words, and I want you to listen to something from Clement of Rome in the first century. He wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, here's our prayer for rulers and governors. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability so that they may give no offense in administering the government you have given them. That's challenging to me because if they can pray that for those emperors they had ruling over them, who are we to ever sit here and say, I'm not praying for that leader or that leader? We ought never to find ourselves in that situation. Pray for your leaders. But what, what's the goal of our prayers for our authorities? As we pray for those who lead, what's the goal? Paul goes on. He says that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. How many of you would like some peace and quiet? <laughs> he says this is one reason we pray for our leaders. Peace is talking about outer peace, and quiet is talking about inner peace. These optimal conditions of leading a peaceful and quiet life. Now, some of us maybe get a little super spiritual and we say, well, isn't that selfish to pray for a peaceful and quiet life? I've even heard some super spiritual types say, maybe the church in America needs some persecution to purify it. You ever heard that? Maybe we should pray for that. Pray for some persecution. Is that what Paul says here? 
No, he tells us to pray for our leaders that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. That doesn't mean we get overcome by persecution when it comes. The church can still advance, but we are not to pray for it or seek for it. We are to pray that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. I don't know what you think of when you think of godliness and holiness. Sometimes we form these to-do lists. But there's more behind it than that. Listen to verses 3 and 4. There's more behind this praying for authorities. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What's he saying? He's saying we pray for our leaders that they will promote peaceful conditions because in peaceful conditions, the gospel can go forward unobstructed by circumstances around it. Paul experienced this in his own ministry in this city of Ephesus. There was a riot that started when he went there. and Two of Paul's friends got dragged before the city and may well have been killed by those who were angry with them until a city clerk of Ephesus stepped in and said, guys, stop it. If there's a problem here, it needs to go to the legal courts. And all those people who could have killed Paul's friends left. The government promoted peace in that situation so that the gospel could continue to spread in Ephesus. What this tells me is as we look at government, we need to have a balance. On the one hand, it's established by God. Punish evildoers. Commend those who do right and promote peace. But don't put your ultimate hope in the government. We never lose hope because of who's in the government. And we never put all of our hope in who's in government either. Because it is established by God, but only as a means to an end. There's the balance. You know what the end is? He wants them to promote peace and quiet so that we can go about our job of spreading the real hope of the gospel without obstruction. They're established by God, but they are just a means to an end. And the question is, when we find ourselves in that state of peace and quiet, as we have for, for our lives here in America, we have all kinds of religious freedom. Are we taking advantage of it for the purpose that God gave it to us for? To live godly and holy lives. And to spread the gospel. Because when he says be godly, it's more than just a to-do list. It's sharing God's heart for all men to be saved. You remember what Jesus said, be merciful for your Father in heaven is merciful. Part of being like God is having a merciful heart. Now there's some sticky questions in here for those of you who know your Bible. It says God wants all men to be saved. Does that mean that all men will be saved? No. No. We know from other parts of the New Testament where it talks about God elects some to be saved. So you got His election on one hand and you got His desire for all men to be saved on the other. I'll give you just one picture that shows me that what God wants in His heart does not always happen. You remember Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus looked out at the city of Jerusalem. You hear his heart. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets 
and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. That's what he wanted with all of his heart, so much so that he wept. But what's the next phrase? It says, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. That's heavy. What do we do with this tension? I like what John Stott said. He said, the right response to this is neither to seek a superficial harmonization by manipulating the evidence, nor to declare that Jesus and Paul contradicted themselves, but to affirm both parts as true while humbly confessing that at present our little minds are unable to resolve it. It's okay to say I'm human. I don't understand how God's election and man's choice works together. That's why you're God. That's why I'm human. I just trust that it's in there. But what do we do know? We may not be able to solve that mystery, but we know we are to pray for their salvation and pursue it. Maybe if we spent less time worrying about solving the mystery and more time doing what we know, we'd be more on track. How many of you enjoy reading Charles Spurgeon's writings? I see Captain back there. He said this. He said, the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. You cannot bring souls to God if you go not to God yourself. You must get your battle axe and your weapons of war from the armory of sacred communication with Christ. If you're much alone with Jesus, you'll catch His Spirit. You'll be fired with the flame that burned in His breast and consumed His life. You will weep with the tears that fell upon Jerusalem when He saw it perishing. And if you cannot speak so eloquently as He did, Yet shall there be about what you say somewhat of the same power which in him thrilled the hearts and awoke the consciences of men. What's he saying? If you want to be a soul winner, you've got to spend time with the ultimate soul winner in prayer. Let him rub off on you. It's like if I, if I spend much time with Jaden, you know what starts to rub off on me? Minecraft. <laughs> If I spend much time with Evan, you know what starts to rub off on me? Trucks. Because when I hang with them, what they do rubs off on me and vice versa. Same with God. You spend time with God, you start to care about what He cares about. And He cares about souls being saved. I read a couple stories this week about the power of praying moms. There's a lot of mothers in the room. This isn't restricted to moms, but... Think about the power of a praying mom or even a praying grandma. I shared with you before, one lady in our church said the only difference between a praying grandma and a pit bull is lipstick. <laughs> She's talking about the, the power of persistent prayer. It's overwhelming. L listen to these stories. And as you hear them, I want you to think about those people in your life who need saved. And ask yourself, could I pray like this for them? And what will God do? Listen to this from, from Reverend King. Even those who will not allow you to speak to them about God cannot prevent you speaking to God about them. What mighty conquests have been won this way? Hudson, a young schoolboy reading tracts in his father's study one Sunday afternoon while his parents were away. 
his mother felt led where she was to pray specially for her boy, who was called that very afternoon miles away to the Savior and to become the great Hudson Taylor of the China Inland Mission. Do you know about the impact Hudson Taylor and his ministry has had in China? If not, find one of his biographies. But you can trace it all the way back to a mom praying for him and him receiving Christ the moment she prayed. How about this one? Reuben, a dissolute young man who has left home, has one night got out of bed to commit suicide. His mother, miles away, has that very hour been constrained also to get out of bed and to pray, especially for her erring son, who instead of suicide was saved, subsequently to become the famous American evangelist, Dr. R.A. Torrey. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. R.A. Torrey, but he was fundamental in establishing the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, where we spent our college years, along D.L. Moody. He was on the verge of suicide. Mom felt led to pray. She prayed. He gave his life to the Lord, and through his ministry, many others have been saved. You hear those stories and ask yourself, who in my life can I pray for? And maybe also at the same time, thank the Lord for those who prayed for you if you've come to Jesus. Thank the Lord for those people. Tell them thank you today. He goes on. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. These words were revolutionary in this context. When he says there's one God, he's speaking in the Roman Empire where many people around there actually believed the emperor was deity, was God. Emperor is Lord. So for him to say there's one God, that's revolutionary stuff. But he doesn't just say there's one God. He says there's one mediator, one go-between, one intermediary. The man, Christ Jesus. I thought about mediators, and it led me to think about this. A couple of weeks ago, when Aaron and Autumn and I went to do that memorial service, we had a picture show that Janie had sent us a bunch of pictures of Christian. About a hundred of them. They were awesome pictures. I, as I put together that show, it touched my heart. And we knew that if the people in that room could see those pictures, it would be one of the most touching moments of the afternoon. We had one problem. All the pictures were on my Mac. And my Mac does not have a connector to the projector at the clubhouse on the other side of Granville. So I'm sitting there looking through their box of connectors, and they had a lot of things that connected to their projector, but none that connected to my Mac. So you can imagine my joy when Aaron walked in, and he said, Hey, Scott, I got the piece you need. This piece connects to the projector, and this piece connects to your Mac. Because we had the right mediator, if you will, it fit on both sides, we were able to convey that picture showed everyone in the room. Now think about Jesus. There's a lot of religions in the world that connect on the man side. They all have that in common. They're all taught by a man or a woman. They all connect on the man side. But there's only one that connects on the man side and the God side because Jesus is the God-man. He's the only one that can complete the connection. You understand what I'm saying? He's the only one. 
through whom we can get access to the Father. That's why he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You have to have the right connection. You have to have the man peace and the God peace. You remember, this is what Job wanted so bad when he was going through all his trials. Before he met God at the end of the book in the windstorm, at one time he said this, Job chapter 9. He said, God's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. I don't know if you can imagine the sorrow in Job's heart as he longed for that mediator. But I think about that and I think, wow, in Jesus, we have what he was longing for. We have the mediator. We have the connection to the Father through Jesus, the God-man. Our ransom. Today, ransom's mostly used in hostage situations. You know, the hostage has someone locked up in a bank and they say, I want this much money for you to get these people. Back in this day, it was usually involved in slavery. If you were a slave and you wanted to be bought out of slavery, you needed someone to pay that price. That's what Paul's saying Jesus did for us. We were slaves to sin, heading for an eternal death until Christ came and paid that ransom. What a mediator. So he goes on, and we're going to close with this verse. He said, This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald. You know what a herald was in those days? They didn't have newspapers and Facebook, so when the emperor wanted something known, he'd tell the herald, the herald would go down to the square and say, Hear ye, hear ye! Here's the news from the emperor today. Listen up. That's a herald. Paul's saying, I'm a herald for Jesus. I got news from Jesus, from God, that I need to tell you. In an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. In a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. What's he talking about? He's talking about spreading the message about Jesus. If Jesus really is the only way, we better get busy telling people. He said there's one God and one mediator. Listen, if, if there are many gods and many ways to heaven and many mediators... You guys don't have to go out there and tell people about Jesus. They're good if there were many gods. But many times in the Old Testament, God said, I am the Lord your God. There is no other. And here it says Jesus the God-man is the only mediator. What's that mean? We must give our lives to praying that those people around us will come to saving faith in Jesus then we must go and share that with them in our words, in our, our actions. If he's the only mediator, we've got to get busy. We may not be apostles, but we are heralds. And we are commanded by Jesus in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's our mission. 
as we close this morning, I thought it would be fitting. This passage has caused me to look at my own life, and I want it to cause us to look at the life of our church. When he says prayer ought to be first of all, I want that to change us this year. So I want to close this service by spending some time in prayer, inviting you to a conversation with God for the next three to five minutes about a couple specific things that we read about. I'd like you to bow your heads and for the next few moments, why don't you spend some time praying for our new administration from the top down all the way to Washington, D.C., down to our local level here. Pray for them that they may administrate in a way that we're able to live peaceful and quiet lives and share the gospel in our country. Just spend a few moments talking to God about that. Father, we lift up our leaders here in this country, in our state, the other states. We lift up the leaders around the world, and we pray that you would help leaders to seek your wisdom, to seek your face, and to, to rule in ways that you would approve of, to promote good and, and punish evildoers and promote peace within their countries, that the gospel may spread without obstruction. We thank you for the freedom you've given us in this country, and I pray that you would just help us to be excited about that freedom and use it to full effect. Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in countries where that's not the case, that there would be peace and quiet, Lord, and that in the midst of the persecution that goes on in many of them right now, you would give our brothers and sisters strength. Lord, thank you for the opportunities you give us to meet right here in a public school in our country, to talk freely with our neighbors and our co-workers. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a praying people, that we'd each have at least one or two people in our hearts leaving this service that we will pray earnestly for, for their salvation and work to that end. Help us to put our hope in your gospel, in your kingdom, Lord. We will respect our government but we will worship you. Put our hope in you. Now I'd like you to take just a minute and think about what he said about wanting all men to be saved. And I want you to think about your own circle of prayer. If we're all honest, we'd say it's some. Now ask God in these next few moments to expand your sum closer to the all on his heart and begin to pray for someone or some group that maybe you've never prayed for before right now in this moment and commit that you'll continue that talk to him about it Lord help your people in this room help me to remember your mercy to us Paul said he was the chief of sinners and he was an example of your unlimited patience. 
Lord, all of us who look deep down inside at where we've been and what we've done and what we've said and thought know the same to be true. All of us who have come to Christ have experienced your mercy. And Lord, we ought to pass that on in our prayers and our actions toward others. We ought to share the gospel of the mediator, Jesus, with them. Soften our hearts to be more like yours.